Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Barbara Holick fell in love with the American West. Born and raised in Germany, the young woman had a keen interest and fascination with the natural beauty of the landscape and the artistic community of Taos in particular. At the age of 28, she left Germany for the last time and settled into Taos, where for the next few years she built friendships and sold jewelry and pottery she crafted and painted herself. Then, in the summer of 1995, she mysteriously vanished. While investigators couldn't find evidence of a crime, they could also find no indications that Barbara was planning to go anywhere. Soon, detectives would find themselves crashing into dead end after dead end in their pursuit of the missing woman. The case would grow cold quickly, leaving investigators, friends, and family frustrated and without answers. Some have theorized that the German national may have fled of her own volition, perhaps to another state or country maybe back to her native home. Others believe she was the victim of foul play, perhaps targeted or perhaps random. Still yet, there are others who believe that someone in Taos, maybe someone close to Barbara, knows far more than they have ever shared. This is Trace Evidence, Episode 216, The Disappearance of Barbara Holick. Welcome to Trace Evidence. I'm your host, Stephen Pacheco. Today, we examine the mysterious 1995 disappearance of Barbara Holick from Taos, New Mexico. Before getting into the case, just a few quick notes about the show. Trace Evidence is a weekly true crime podcast focused on unsolved murders and disappearances. Visit trace-evidence.com for all social media links, episode breakdowns, donation options, and contact information. You can submit case suggestions through the website or by emailing me directly at traceevidencepod at gmail.com. As a final note, this year, CrimeCon will be taking place in Orlando, Florida from September 22nd through the 24th. I'll be there representing Trace Evidence on Podcast Row, and I hope to see you too. Visit crimecon.com and use promo code TRACE to save 10% on your pass. That's crimecon.com, promo code TRACE. When Barbara Holick mysteriously vanished from her apartment, investigators moved quickly to try and track her down. Nearly 30 years later, the truth remains obscured. This is episode 216, The Disappearance of Barbara Holick. (laughs) 
Running from Poncha Pass in southern Colorado to Glorieta Pass southeast of Santa Fe, the Sangre de Cristo Mountains contain a number of peaks towering over 12,000 feet. Thought to have been named due to the reddish glow that caps the mountain range at sunrise and sunset, thousands are drawn to their natural beauty and the scenic vista of the valley below and beyond. Wheeler Peak, the highest point in New Mexico at 13,161 feet, is in the western lobe of the Cristos, known as the Taos Mountains. Located in the north-central region, the city of Taos has a long and storied history which can be traced back for more than a millennia. Beginning in 1899, Taos became a popular spot for artists to come together, and in 1915, six of them would form the Taos Society of Artists. Over time, the Taos art colony would grow, and many of the paintings created back then are still available for viewing in local museums. Over the next 80 years, thousands would be drawn to Taos to view the beauty of the region, to get involved in the art scene, and in many cases, to make their homes in the golden majesty of New Mexico's stunning beauty. It was that majestic beauty which first caught the attention of Barbara Holick. Born on Saturday, March 24, 1962, in Rudenthal, Germany, Barbara had always harbored an interest and fascination with the American West. She found herself enchanted by the landscape, attracted to the artistry, and welcomed into the community. After completing schooling, she took up work as a travel agent through which she organized many trips and tours to the United States, the vast majority of them focusing in on New Mexico and specifically the areas of Taos and Taos Pueblo. So much did she love the region that in late 1989, just a few months before her 28th birthday, Barbara left Germany for the last time with her sights set on her beloved New Mexico. Originally settling further north in El Prado, less than a year after her arrival, Barbara would travel south where she'd ultimately settle in Taos, the city which had originally captured her heart and attention. There, according to friends, she became deeply enamored by Native American culture and began studying much of it through local libraries, museums, and by speaking with historians and scholars. Initially, her plan was to split off from her original career as a travel agent, instead wanting to learn everything she could about the area so that she could start a business operating as a tour guide for visitors. Reportedly, Barbara ran into some issues with her work visa, and as a result, her immigration status was in jeopardy. It was around this time that she encountered a man named Sonny Spruce, who, in addition to being an artist, owned and operated a small curio store and gallery. Barbara and Spruce struck up a friendship, and ultimately they'd make a deal. In exchange for working in the gallery, rather than a paycheck, Barbara asked if she could carve out a small section of the store so that she could sell her creations and keep the profit. There, she sold handmade silver jewelry and painted pottery, among other wares. Suzanne Currier, a friend of Barbara's, was in awe of her skill, specifically when it came to the painting and construction of pottery. She explained to the Albuquerque Journal, saying, quote, Her pottery is little tiny bowls with fine-line mimbris design. Beautiful, meticulous little bowls. She was fairly quiet, very meticulous in how she does things. End quote. While there has never been an accounting to determine how much money Barbara made on a daily or weekly basis from her sales, it was apparently enough for her to take care of herself. She purchased a new car, a Ford Fiesta, and moved into a duplex apartment located on Rosarita Lane. Less than half a mile from her job, 
Barbara often walked to and from work, so long as the weather permitted. Over the course of the next few years, Barbara would become deeply entangled in the Taos community, making friends, creating business relationships, and still, from time to time, leading tours through the town and surrounding wilderness. Opinions on Barbara seem almost universal. She was smart, kind, caring, and talented. She made friends easily, but also maintained a very private personal life. The two words which come up most frequently in statements from friends were loner and friendly. It appears that Barbara's personality was somewhat of a dichotomy, easy to befriend, fun to be around, but when she entered a quiet period, she could be more reserved and closed off. By the spring of 1995, Barbara had established her life and routine in Taos. Working at the gallery during the day, Barbara often capped off her nights by stopping at her favorite bar and grill, El Patio, known today as the Alley Cantina. Located less than two-tenths of a mile from the gallery, Barbara was described by employees as a frequent visitor. Sometimes she'd come in and meet with friends, other times she'd chat up local artists. Still yet, she'd come alone. For her, the bar was purely about socializing and having a good time. She drank, but not to excess, with bartenders stating that her normal night would consist of two glasses of scotch and water or maybe a beer or two. When Barbara wasn't working at the gallery, she kept herself busy by studying local history, creating items for sale in her section of the shop, leading tour groups through the area, and sometimes taking trips across New Mexico and into neighboring states. June was set to be a busy month for the 33-year-old as she had planned a trip north to Pagosa Springs in Colorado and had purchased tickets for a rafting trip as a close friend from Germany was planning to visit by way of Canada. Unfortunately, before the two friends could be united, Barbara Holick mysteriously vanished. She was last seen on the evening of Friday, June 23rd. After completing her shift at the gallery, she made the short walk out of Taos Plaza, heading south along Paseo del Pueblo Norte. From there, she turned west, heading to El Patio. Hanging out at the bar for approximately an hour to 90 minutes, Barbara is believed to have left sometime between 10 and 11 p.m. From there, it's presumed that she took her normal route home, which would have had her walking west on Don Fernando, south a few blocks on Manzanares, and then west again on Rosarita Lane, a cul-de-sac where Barbara was renting a duplex apartment. While it has been presumed this is what occurred, the truth is no one can speak with any certainty about Barbara's movements following her time at the bar. Reportedly, the weekend of the 24th and 25th passed without anyone seeing, speaking with, or encountering Barbara. On Monday, June 26th, she failed to show up for her shift at the gallery. Noting that Barbara was always on time and reliable, her boss, Sonny Spruce, became concerned. After several calls to her apartment went unanswered, Spruce made the decision to go and check on her personally. Arriving at the duplex, he knocked on the door for several minutes, but never received an answer. Checking the knob, he found the door unlocked, something which struck him as out of the usual for the normally security-conscious Barbara. Inside, the apartment appeared to be in order. Spruce noted several items sitting out, but for the most part, described the interior as being well-organized and showing no signs that any kind of a struggle or incident had occurred there. After walking through the apartment and failing to find Barbara, Spruce was concerned, but not necessarily worried. 
While Barbara had always been clear about her travel plans and excellent about her requests for time off, he could find no solid explanation for her absence that day. Hoping for the best, he went home that evening and assumed he'd see Barbara the next day, where she'd certainly have a good reason for having missed work. But when he opened the gallery the next morning, Barbara wasn't there. He began to get a sinking feeling that something had to be wrong. At approximately 4 p.m. on Tuesday, June 27th, Spruce once again arrived at Barbara's apartment and found it in the exact condition it had been the previous day. Not a single item was out of place, and it appeared clear to Spruce that Barbara hadn't been inside since he had been there the day before. Now, with his concern reaching its peak and no rational explanation for Barbara's disappearance, he picked up the phone and called the Taos Police Department to file a missing persons report. Arriving on Rosarita Lane, investigators first noted that Barbara's Ford Fiesta was parked in the driveway. Accessing the apartment through the same unlocked door Spruce had previously used, detectives made several notes about the condition of the apartment and positioning of items. In the living room, they found Barbara's purse sitting on a table, inside of which they recovered her driver's license, keys, and several credit cards. A second handbag was found on a bedside table and was noted as having a roll of dollar bills sticking out of it. The blanket on Barbara's bed along with the top sheet had been pulled down and looked as though the 33-year-old had gotten out of bed at some point and then vanished. Several pieces of luggage were found stowed beneath the bed and a lavender blouse which Barbara had been wearing when last seen was hanging in the bathroom. Night clothes, believed to have been worn by Barbara the night of her disappearance, were found as well, suggesting that she had gotten out of bed and dressed at some point before disappearing. According to investigators, the apartment was in immaculate condition and nothing appeared to be missing. However, there were two items found which didn't look like they belonged. According to detectives, a pair of work gloves were found inside and no one could positively identify them as belonging to Barbara. One glove was found lying on the floor in front of the refrigerator. Another was near an exterior door. The duplex was home to two apartments, with Barbara's being situated in the rear of the home. The other apartment was vacant at the time. Finding no indication that any type of violent incident had taken place, investigators were sent out to several different locations she was known to have frequented. They quickly zeroed in on El Patio as being the last place where anyone had actually seen the missing woman. Multiple witnesses would tell investigators that Barbara had arrived at the bar on the 23rd, had her usual two drinks, and left sometime between 10 and 11. Unfortunately, no one, including Michael Sayre, a local attorney and friend of Barbara's, could confirm if Barbara had been there alone or in someone else's company. Nor could they say with any certainty whether or not Barbara had left alone. At the time, they were uncertain as to whether or not any crime had actually been committed. They certainly couldn't find solid evidence to prove this, but the suggestion that perhaps Barbara had left of her own volition was quickly ruled out by friends. No one believed she would leave, especially without telling anyone and leaving all of her belongings behind. Michael Sayre told the journal, quote, She was very responsible, a bit of a loner. She never took trips without letting people know where she was going and clearing it with work, end quote. Beyond that, no one could answer the most basic question in this scenario. Had Barbara run off? Why had she left behind her car, identification, all of her money, credit cards, and clothes? It would seem to even an outside observer 
that choosing to move away would normally necessitate at a minimum money and a mode of transportation. Since her car was left behind, investigators contacted multiple car rental businesses in and around Taos, but none of them had any records of renting a vehicle to Barbara in the days leading up to her disappearance. Running out of options, investigators next contacted local hospitals, but none had any records of Barbara being admitted. Having gone through her apartment, detectives couldn't locate her passport or visa, and so it was theorized that she may have gone south, perhaps crossing into Mexico. However, when officials checked, Border Patrol had no records of Barbara ever crossing the border. Hoping that perhaps someone may have heard or seen something, investigators canvassed the neighborhood. This hope was quickly extinguished as not only had neighbors not heard or seen anything, Most of them said that while they had seen Barbara from time to time, none of them knew her or had any kind of relationship with her beyond showing a polite wave once in a while when they passed. The apartment Barbara rented was owned by a Virginia resident named Alice Messina. All of the utilities, including the phone, were in Messina's name, and she quickly granted investigators access to those records. Unfortunately, nothing was really learned from a records check as Chief Curran of the Taos Police would say, quote, Nothing there gives us any direction. There are no long-distance calls, no indication she was planning a trip. End quote. For the most part, investigators worked Barbara's case that week under the suspicion that foul play had been involved. Then Taos Police Chief Curran noted that many of Barbara's friends were aiding in the investigation and that all of them were extremely concerned for her safety. In hopes that perhaps Barbara's friends might be able to establish whether or not anything was missing or obviously out of place at the apartment, on Friday, June 30th, one week after Barbara had last been seen, investigators took several of them inside the house on Rosarita Lane. While none of them seemed to note anything out of the ordinary, detectives managed to speak with a maid, employed by Messina, who had a bizarre story to tell. According to the maid, who has never been publicly identified, she had been hired to clean the vacant apartment next door. Reportedly, four Albuquerque-based businessmen had rented the apartment while they were in town and had vacated the property on the morning of June 23rd, approximately 10 to 12 hours before Barbara was last seen. The maid went on to say that she noticed nothing unusual that day, but when she returned the following morning, Saturday the 24th, there were several things about the apartment that stood out to her. Arriving that Saturday morning, the maid found a black pair of women's shoes lying on the couch, shoes which had not been present the previous day. These shoes were later positively identified by friends as belonging to Barbara Holick. In addition to the shoes, the maid noted that a bed was missing its mattress cover, blanket, and one sheet for which she had no explanation. That bedding has never been found. Strangely, the maid told investigators that a chair also appeared to have been moved between the two days, having been taken from a table in the living room and moved elsewhere in the apartment. Perhaps the most baffling piece of information had to do with the phone. The wire between the phone base and the receiver had been cut, meaning the phone would still operate for outbound calls, but the caller would not be able to hear anything, nor would anyone on the other end of the line be able to hear them. While this information piqued investigators' interest, it also led to one of the most deflating moments in the investigation. The maid went on to explain while she had found all of the aforementioned details out of the ordinary, she was not at that time aware of Barbara's disappearance. In fact, nobody was. 
and so she had gone through with her assignment, thoroughly cleaning the apartment and destroying any potential evidence in the process. While investigators did go through that vacant apartment, they were not able to recover anything which clued them into what may or may not have happened to Barbara. After speaking with the owner, detectives learned that Barbara did not utilize the neighboring apartment, though she did have access to it, as the exterior lights were powered on and off from that apartment, so she did enter the vacant space when necessary. A theory began developing that perhaps something had roused Barbara from her sleep that night, causing her to throw on her clothes, step into her shoes, and go to the apartment next door. Whether or not that had been a random incident or perhaps someone attempting to lure Barbara next door, no one could be certain. All they really knew at the time was that she had gone missing, and they didn't have any solid evidence linking that disappearance to a crime. Believing that perhaps one of the businessmen who had stayed in the apartment that weekend had seen or heard something, Chief Curran wanted them interviewed. But for reasons passing understanding, those interviews would not be conducted until nearly a month after Barbara disappeared. Even then, the interviews were extremely thin and poorly conducted. Instead of questioning the men about their whereabouts on the night of Barbara's disappearance, they were asked about their observances of her. All four men stated they had not spoken to her during their time in Taos, and two of the men went so far as to say they hadn't even seen her. Investigators asked where they had visited, and specifically if they had visited any bars in the area, perhaps in an attempt to tie them to El Patio, but nothing substantial was gleaned from these interviews. Asked about this later, Chief Curran noted that he wished he had done the interviews himself, telling the Taos News, quote, those people could have been the key, end quote. At the same time, why Chief Curran didn't re-interview them himself if he felt investigators had done a poor job has never been answered. On Saturday, July 1st, investigators were put into contact with Barbara's German friend who had arrived for the visit. The visitor left a message on Barbara's answering machine on Monday, June 26th. When notified of the disappearance, he immediately came to Taos to try and assist. Utilizing this person as a translator, investigators contacted Barbara's family and notified them of the situation. That day, they were not super concerned as investigators explained that while Barbara was missing, they hadn't discovered any evidence to suggest she was the victim of a crime or that she had been the victim of any violence. However, the following day, when they spoke to the family for the second time, the lack of developments concerned them. While Barbara's parents wanted to fly out to New Mexico right away, Investigators advised them to wait and see what else could be found as, to that point, there was nothing they could really do. Barbara's brother, Hans, was a police officer in Germany and informed investigators that he would be coming to New Mexico towards the end of the month should his sister not be found. Friends began organizing search efforts to try and track down Barbara. They assembled missing persons flyers and spread them throughout Taos and surrounding cities and towns. One friend donated $1,000 as a reward for information leading to her safe return. By the morning of July 3rd, investigators were reevaluating their approach to the case, with Chief Curran telling the media that they were essentially starting the investigation over from a new perspective. Chief Curran explained, quote, All we have to this point is a missing person. The apartment shows no evidence of foul play, but judging by what we've learned about her, that friends say she is very precise and well-organized, plus the time involved, we have to consider everything. 
the more we get into it, the more we believe there may be foul play involved. End quote. In an attempt to determine Barbara's whereabouts and travels during the days leading up to her disappearance, investigators began going through items recovered from her apartment. One item they found was a Colorado lottery ticket purchased in Pagosa Springs. According to the data available, they believed the ticket was purchased on June 20th, one day before Barbara returned to Taos. This resulted in a few different investigative avenues being explored regarding Colorado, but no solid evidence was found to assist. Running into dead end after dead end, Chief Curran turned to the public for assistance. He explained, quote, We have nothing to go on. We've even talked to some psychics. We're asking the community if anyone has seen her at any time prior to the 23rd. We need to know what they saw and who she might have been with. End quote. Police fielded lots of calls from anonymous tipsters who claimed to know the location of Barbara's body. Investigators went out on several different wild goose chases that never led them any closer to locating the missing woman. One area which came up several times was Borrego Crossing, located inside the Carson National Forest, but searches there yielded no results. Another tip led investigators to a rural area near Pilar where a fresh grave was spotted. Upon digging up the area, it was quickly determined that the bones had belonged to a dog. Yet another dead end. Then, things took a bizarre, if not curious, turn. In late July, approximately one month after Barbara disappeared, detectives going through her car found an item that caught their attention. It was a library card, but it didn't belong to Barbara. The name on the card was Olaf Peter Judah, a name known well throughout New Mexico. According to investigators, not only did Judah have a friendship with Barbara, but he was also known to have frequented El Patio, and he had previously lived with and or subletted an apartment to her in El Prado, two miles north of Taos. While investigators spoke about Judah as though they were suspicious of his potential involvement in her disappearance, there was one big problem with their theory. Judah was serving a 22-year sentence in federal prison. He had been arrested on July 16, 1991 in waters off the coast of Washington State. Judah and five others were rescued from the ocean by a Coast Guard cutter, which had been in pursuit of his yacht. On board the boat was more than 1,000 pounds of hashish, which Judah had acquired in Asia. When authorities began pursuit, Judah apparently set the yacht ablaze, and he and the crew jumped overboard. However, Officials were able to put the fire out, and after searching the yacht, they recovered 32 bales of hashish weighing more than 40 pounds each. As a result of his attempt to smuggle drugs into the country, Judah was tried and sentenced to 22 years. Following the arrest, Andres Vargas, a local attorney and friend of Barbara's, told police that she'd called him when members of the DEA arrived at her home wanting to ask questions about Judah. Reportedly, Drug enforcement agents wanted information about Judah and access to a storage unit he was renting at Heinz and Heinz Storage in Taos. Barbara, who was in possession of the keys, handed them over to authorities who went on to recover nearly $90,000 in cash and cashier's checks from New Mexico bank accounts and safety deposit boxes held by Judah. They also seized passports, land documents, jewelry, an IOU, and a diary. While no charges were filed against Barbara, DEA agents noted in their reports that she certainly had access to that storage unit. 
Judah took great offense to the subtle accusations being thrown in his direction by investigators, specifically Chief Curran. He felt that he was being maligned and slandered in the media without any ability to defend himself, so he filed a lawsuit seeking $150,000 in compensatory damages and $150,000 in punitive damages, plus a public apology and the covering of the costs of litigation. As part of the lawsuit, Judah released a statement addressing Barbara. His statement reads, in part, quote, I am emotionally hurt by these accusations, and friends in New Mexico have expressed concern and confusion over this matter. I find the accusations of Curran totally unfounded and in violation of his personal and official responsibility. Before I departed for Asia in February of 1991, I gave Barbara Holick my library card for use in her research and guiding tours in New Mexico. I have had absolutely no knowledge of or have had anything to do with her disappearance and am willing to take a polygraph test to prove it. These baseless accusations by Curran have caused emotional stress and permanent damage to me. That a chief of police has made these remarks in the public would naturally draw the conclusion that the plaintiff is in some manner responsible for the disappearance of Miss Holick. End quote. Whether or not investigators had any evidence to link Barbara's disappearance to Judah outside of the fact that the two had known one another four years earlier has never been revealed. However, another detail was revealed through this investigation. As it turned out, in August of 1991, approximately one month after Judah had been arrested, Barbara got married. According to friends, the marriage was not about love or a true connection, but an attempt by the German national to shore up her immigration status. According to public records, she married a man named Thomas Killebrew. Investigators would later state, sometime after the marriage, Killebrew had fallen off the grid. Previously, he had been known to investigators following an arrest by Taos police in 1983 for distribution of cocaine. In February of 1994, Barbara officially divorced Killebrew, reportedly because she discovered that he was already married to someone else at the time they were wed. Detectives were very interested in speaking with Killebrew about Barbara and his whereabouts on the weekend of her disappearance. Asked about a potential link, Chief Curran told the Taos News, quote, We think he was doing her a favor by marrying her. There is some question as to whether or not they were intimate. He'd be an interesting person to interview. It's my personal opinion she's either deceased or she's making a real effort to conceal her identity. It's difficult to tell which. That's one of the reasons I'd like to talk to Killebrew. End quote. While detectives managed to track down Killebrew, much as had been the case with Judah, it turned out that he was in jail at the time of her disappearance. Two potential suspects brought up by investigators, both with past ties to Barbara, but both physically incapable of having been responsible for her disappearance. Following their look at the four Albuquerque businessmen, then Killebrew and Judah, it quickly became apparent that investigators were, by that point, grasping at straws. In a sense, it was back to square one, with few leads that seemed even remotely promising. Chief Curran explained, quote, We continue to follow through on any type of lead and our direction remains the same to focus on the people that knew her. But so far, we're stalemated. We've entered her name on the Interpol and contacted the German embassy in Houston. We've checked with immigration to see if there's been a violation, but right now, 
We're just trying to coordinate records, end quote. In late August, Hans arrived in New Mexico. The German police officer met with investigators and was brought up to date on the case and the lack of developments. He went to his sister's apartment to pack up her belongings. Some would be placed in a local storage unit. Others would be brought home to Germany. While there was little Hans could do to help investigators, during the process of cleaning out the apartment, he discovered two items that detectives had been seeking, both Barbara's passport and her visa. Curiously, at this point, it was revealed that in addition to everything else found in the apartment, investigators had also recovered an undisclosed amount of cash described only as several thousand dollars. The passport, visa, and cash discoveries only worked to diminish the probability of Barbara leaving of her own volition. By November, five months after Barbara's disappearance, the investigation had ground to a standstill. Despite hundreds of tips called in, there had been little developed, and for the most part, it seemed, people had started moving on. Asked about the status of the case, Chief Curran replied, quote, we have been receiving information that she's buried in the forest, but so far, nothing. We try to follow each lead. She is now listed as a missing person on Interpol as a possibility of foul play. What with the time element involved, our thinking has to be that harm has come to her, and we have to assume she may be buried in the immediate area. It seems like locally, she's pretty well been forgotten about. We don't hear from her friends much. She's missing but we still have no hard evidence of a crime. Frankly, we're stumped. End quote. One month later, in early December, Taos police were contacted by an unidentified juvenile who claimed to have seen a body in an area southeast of Millicent Rogers Museum. Charlie Martinez of the New Mexico State Police stated that on Thursday, December 7th and Friday, December 8th, they worked in unison with the Taos police and Taos Pueblo Tribal Police to search through the area, described as being mostly sagebrush. While no body was recovered, police did find a 35-millimeter camera that still had film inside. They went on to have the film developed, but they have never commented on what the images revealed. Reportedly, the juvenile had seen the body approximately six months earlier, sometime in late June or early July, but had not reported it at that time because he was afraid of getting involved in the investigation. In addition to this search, it was noted that investigators were trying to track down a woman who had placed a call to Roadrunner Recyclers on Monday, December 11th. According to detectives, the unknown woman had called and was inquiring about Barbara's location. Whether or not she was ever tracked down or identified is unknown. Up next, investigators would once again spin the wheel of potential suspects and find themselves considering the possibility that a man and woman recently arrested in Arizona may have been involved. The man was charged with the sexual assault and murder of a 14-year-old girl, and his girlfriend who had traveled with him was cooperating with investigators. In a report sent by Tucson police to Taos investigators, the suspect's girlfriend stated that the couple had been in Taos during the time of the disappearance, with records showing that the two had obtained food stamps in Taos in early July. Reportedly, the duo had come to Taos and spent approximately one month at the Rainbow Family Gathering, north of Tres Piedras, more than 30 miles northwest of Taos. Investigators allegedly became interested in the man 
after it was discovered that a group of Rainbow family members had been staying in an apartment directly across the street from Barbara. However, they could never link that man or his girlfriend to Barbara, and outside of them having been in the area at the time, there was little else they could see. In addition to this, it was noted that the 14-year-old victim had been found out in the open. She was neither buried nor concealed, instead left out at a campsite, while Barbara had never been found. Interestingly, the man's girlfriend allegedly described the couple as New Age hippies, which normally wouldn't have garnered any attention from detectives, but one anonymous caller had previously claimed to have seen Barbara in a vehicle alongside two women and, quote, three hippie-type men. The vehicle had British Columbia plates on it, and while Taos police requested assistance from the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, they were unable to trace the vehicle or find any of the person's descriptions that they had been given. Whether or not this anonymous tip was reliable or just another wild chase could neither be confirmed nor denied. In perhaps the greatest expression of investigators' frustration and an inability to uncover leads, Chief Curran stated that they had spoken with two so-called psychics who claimed to have pertinent information. One of them told investigators that Barbara had been buried alive in an area that was clouded by a foul odor. This led detectives to conduct a large-scale search of an area surrounding a waste treatment plant, but again, nothing was found. As the case began growing colder, there would be no news or developments for the next eight years. But then, in 2003, some new information came out. Taos investigator Barry Holfelder took over Barbara's case from the previous lead investigator, Lieutenant Manny Trujillo. While he came into the case with a lot of hope and driven to get to the bottom of it, he found himself running into the same dead ends as his predecessors. However, there was one call he received which led to a bizarre finding. On Monday, April 7th, Detective Holfelder received a call from a local man who had a strange story to tell. According to the caller, he and some friends had gone hiking in the area around the rim of Comanche Canyon, looking for arrowheads in the summer of 1995, shortly after Barbara's disappearance. There, they came upon a bloody woman's blouse hanging from a tree. When the man later spoke with a friend of the missing woman, he was told that the item sounded like a piece of clothing she had owned. At that point, he reached out to investigators, but according to Detective Holfelder, no one ever got back to him, so he just stopped calling. Eight years later, he read a comprehensive article about the disappearance and reached out again, this time getting in touch with Holfelder. The man led Holfelder to the tree where the blouse was still hanging. He later stated that the location was on a high Mesa wilderness area on the south side of US-285, south of Tres Piedras. After obtaining the blouse, Holfelder began showing it to friends of Barbara's and sent photos to her family, hoping someone could positively identify the garment. Were it confirmed to be Barbara's, it would then be sent out to the New Mexico State Crime Lab in hopes of obtaining DNA or any other evidence. But the condition made results unlikely, with Holfelder explaining, quote, at this point, the shirt is quite deteriorated. It's been torn and ripped and bleached by the sun and elements, end quote. While the blouse certainly drew attention and blasted Barbara's story back into the headlines, little else developed and the case grew quiet again. 
Five years later, in November of 2008, more than 13 years after Barbara's disappearance, her brother was interviewed by a German newspaper. The article was translated into English and reprinted in the Taos News. In discussion with the interviewer, Hans noted that no one in his family had heard from nor had any contact with his sister since 1995. It had been extremely difficult on the family, with Hans explaining that while his mother fought to cling to even the slimmest glimmer of hope, his father became more withdrawn and quiet, refusing to speak about his daughter with anyone. Sadly, in 2007, he passed away without ever having spoken to or seen his daughter again. Asked what he believed had happened to his sister, Hans replied, quote, I assume that there was a crime. There were some key points in the life of my parents when I thought, if Barbara is still alive, she would now get in touch with us again. If there's a grave you can go to, you at least have a significant point. My parents never got really happy again. End quote. He went on to explain that following his father's passing, they were having issues in terms of the estate. Barbara was listed as an inheritor by her father, but since she had never been found nor had a death certificate been issued, her piece of the estate could not be executed. When Hans was informed that he could file to have his sister officially declared dead in order to handle the financial issues, he backed off on the discussion saying he was not in a place where he felt ready to do that. As he explained, even with but a sliver of hope, it's difficult to accept the grim possibilities. The last time Barbara or her case were discussed publicly was in June of 2015, which marked 20 years since she had vanished. While a lot of theories had been considered and debated over the years, many had been ruled out as unlikely or for completely lacking any evidentiary support. Some friends thought it was possible she could have been taken into the witness protection program, perhaps due to her previous connections to men in the drug business. Others thought she fled for immigration reasons, believing she was going to be deported. While certainly a possibility, this seems unlikely since in the weeks prior to her disappearance, she had filed paperwork to renew her visa. Now, I try pretty hard not to insert my personal opinion into the evidence section of an episode, but I believe I would be remiss if I didn't note that this upcoming quote is one of the strangest and potentially dumbest public statements I've ever seen made by a member of law enforcement about an open investigation. In 2015, Manny Trujillo, who had previously been the lead investigator on the case, had risen in the ranks and had become chief of the Taos police. Asked his theory about the disappearance, he told the Taos News, quote, It didn't look like foul play. There was nothing broken. It looked like she just got out of bed and went away. Something you never solve stays on your mind. I'm still convinced she got tired and wanted to go home to Germany. End quote. Let that sink in for just a moment. The family has made it very clear they haven't seen nor heard from her since 1995. All of her money, clothing, passport, visa, vehicle, and personal belongings were left behind in Taos. There's no record of her exiting the country, which would have been impossible to do without her passport anyway, outside of the slim chance she could have crossed either into Canada or Mexico. However, even if she had, she clearly wasn't looking to return home to Germany. Not to mention, if her immigration status was in question and she really just wanted to go home to Germany, then why would she have potentially been running to avoid deportation? 
How could you investigate this case and dismiss all of the evidence to the contrary in order to make that statement? It's absolutely galling. Sure, there was nothing in her apartment that looked strange or out of place. Sure, there was nothing that suggested a crime. But what about next door where they found her shoes and a cut phone line and missing blankets and sheets? It's just ridiculous. For their part, retired former Chief Curran and Detective Holfelder held to their beliefs that foul play was likely involved. While they had never uncovered solid evidence to suggest that Barbara had been the victim of a crime, they'd never found any to prove she had simply left either. Truly, it seemed that from the moment of Barbara's disappearance to nearly 30 years later, investigators are just as stumped as they found themselves in 1995. When last seen, Barbara Holick was described as being a white female standing five feet tall and weighing 120 pounds with brown eyes and brown waist-length hair. She speaks with a thick German accent and her ears are pierced. She was last seen at El Patio Bar and Grill, today the Alley Cantina, on Friday, June 23, 1995 in Taos, New Mexico. At the time of her disappearance, Barbara was 33 years old. And if alive today, she would be turning 61 later this month. Barbara Holick fell in love with the American West and left everything she'd ever known behind to move halfway around the world. Settling into Taos, she made friends, created jewelry and crafts that she sold, and studied the history of the region while leading tours out into the wilderness. She had come to realize her dreams only for them to transform into a nightmare. All these years later, and those who loved and cared for Barbara remain in the uncertain limbo of unknowing, hoping someday to find Barbara and bring her home. When someone is just really good at what they do, it could be a waiter, a chef, or a doctor, then you know you're in good hands. Like when you see a chef cooking four different complicated meals all at the same time commanding the kitchen like a general so much so that even Gordon Ramsay would be impressed. When you see that, you can't help but have some confidence. But it isn't always easy to find the best of the best. However, on ZocDoc, finding the right doctor for you is a seamless process. The quality care you need is just a few taps away in the ZocDoc app. There's nothing worse than going to a doctor's appointment and quickly learning your doctor is disinterested. Instead of listening to you intently and asking how you're feeling, the doctor's just checking the clock. On ZocDoc, you'll find quality doctors who focus on you, listen to you, and prioritize your care. ZocDoc is the only free app that lets you find and book doctors who are patient-reviewed, take your insurance, available when you need them, and treat almost every condition under the sun. No more doctor roulette or scouring the internet for questionable reviews. With ZocDoc, you have a trusted guide to connect you to your favorite doctor that you haven't even met yet. Millions of people use ZocDoc's free app to find and book a doctor in their neighborhood who is patient-reviewed and fits their needs and schedule just right. Go to ZocDoc.com trace and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. That's zocdoccom slash trace. ZocDoc.com slash trace. Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. 
This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit The disappearance of Barbara Holick is an extremely frustrating case nearly bereft of evidence. Trying to determine the fate of a woman who mysteriously disappears sometime during a 48- to 72-hour period of time without any solid evidence, leads, witnesses, or motives can be a nearly insurmountable task. I couldn't help but see the parallels between Barbara's disappearance and that of Mel Wiley, featured in episode 215. The primary difference being that there was vastly more evidence available to suggest Mel left of his own volition, and even in that case, it wasn't enough to be certain one way or the other. It's really challenging to try and analyze this case since we have so little to work with. It doesn't provide a situation in which you can weigh the pros and cons of different theories because in the end, it mostly comes down to personal opinion. Which is more likely, running off or being the victim of a crime? That all depends on your perspective. Those who knew Barbara the best were clear. There was no way she would have just run off without telling anyone. She left everything behind. Her car, her money, her passport and visa, everything that she would need to travel out of town, let alone to go a great distance. At the same time, there's evidence found which doesn't necessarily directly imply that Barbara was the victim of any particular crime, but it's enough to raise the question. The missing bedding from the apartment next door, her shoes being found in that apartment and the cut phone line. When Chief Trujillo stated that he believed it was entirely possible that Barbara left and went back to Germany, he noted that they had found nothing in the apartment to suggest a crime had occurred and described it as looking like she had stepped out of bed and went away. The problem was, he didn't address any of the aforementioned evidence. Yeah, it's pretty easy to say someone may have run off when you ignore everything that suggests the opposite. Since we can't go through this case normally by breaking down different theories, it's probably best to simply address what we know and go from there. Barbara moves to New Mexico in late 1989, early 1990. She initially settles further north before she ends up in El Prado, not far north of Taos. There, she allegedly lives with and or sublets an apartment from Olaf Peter Judah. Not long after, in July of 91, Judah's arrested and sentenced to 22 years in federal prison for drug smuggling. According to him, before he leaves for that trip, he gives his library card to Barbara so she could continue her work researching the history of the region. Had Judah been out of prison at the time, or had he an established history of violent crimes, this might be a more tantalizing clue. But the presence of a library card belonging to someone who's been in prison for four years doesn't exactly set my radar off. Now, there has been vast speculation over the years about Judah, but there's never really been any evidence presented to support the theories. I think the first question you'd have to ask is, why after four years would he suddenly find it necessary to want to get rid of Barbara? He's already in prison. It's not like she can testify against him or present additional evidence. She didn't seem to have anything on him since the DEA didn't utilize her or glean information from their interviews with her. The only thing she did have was possession of the keys to Judah's storage unit where the DEA seized nearly $100,000 in cash, plus countless pieces of jewelry, precious stones, land documents, and other items of value. 
Some have suggested that maybe Judah was angry about her handing the keys over to the DEA, but that's a pretty ridiculous argument. Do you really think the DEA wouldn't have just broken the lock if the keys weren't accessible? Then, attention turns to Barbara's ex-husband, Thomas Killebrew. There's a lot of different stories about this guy, but none of them really match up. We know he was arrested by Taos police in 1983 for distributing cocaine. He has an extensive record with arrests all over the place, both before and after Barbara's disappearance. Killebrew is an interesting angle to examine, if for no other reason than the fact that he and Barbara must have been somewhat close for the marriage to have been an option. In fairness, it's been said by friends that the marriage was purely a move to assist Barbara in securing her status in the United States, but there's some conflicting information about how things ended. While Detective Holfelder later stated that the two had married in August of 91 and divorced six weeks later when Barbara learned Killebrew was already married, public records indicate Barbara filed for divorce from Killebrew in December of 93, which makes it quite a bit longer than six weeks. It's also interesting to note that the divorce position was unchallenged since, by that point, Killebrew was in the wind and no one was quite sure where he was. Reportedly, Barbara had originally met him when he was working as a bartender at El Patio. I can see why investigators wanted to interview him. In a missing person's case, it makes sense to look at the spouse or former partner, but it didn't take them long to determine that Killebrew had been in jail during the time of Barbara's disappearance, described by investigators as a pretty solid alibi. I'm inclined to agree. Still, you could speculate the same way folks did about Judah, that maybe Killebrew wanted something from Barbara or was angry at her for some reason and hired someone to take care of her. The problem again becomes why. Killebrew didn't get anything after Barbara disappeared. He didn't seem to have anything to gain from her going missing. And even after she went missing, he lived his life much as he had before, getting popped for everything from petty crimes to the 18 counts of forgery he faced in December of 2003. So, once again, someone from Barbara's past who seemingly had nothing against her, no motive to want her harmed, and no physical ability to actually have participated in the act. Killebrew is far from a rich man and wouldn't have had the money to pay someone for a hit anyway, at least not someone who executed the crime so impeccably. Judah may have had access to money, but despite what movies might suggest, it isn't all that easy to hire someone to commit murder when you're sitting in a federal prison cell. Even if he had, which, again, we could find no reason for, it would have been hard to hide that connection. For many, the next most likely persons of interest are one or any combination of the four businessmen who had stayed in the other apartment in the duplex. Why investigators waited a month to interview these guys, I'll never fully understand. But then when they actually did sit down with them, they barely asked anything important. These guys were 10 feet from her door and left town the morning of her disappearance. For the record, the drive from Taos to Albuquerque is approximately 140 miles or two and a half hours. It's entirely possible one or more than one of these guys could have seen Barbara and had an interest, maybe a dark one. So they leave Friday morning, return to Albuquerque, and go back to their homes. What's to say one or more of them couldn't have driven back that night, abducted Barbara, assaulted and murdered her, and then disposed of her body somewhere along the way back? Did they request their phone records, their financials, anything to confirm one way or the other whether a car had been rented, a trip had been taken, a gas station was stopped at on the way to or from Taos after they got back from Albuquerque? 
I'd really like to think so. But considering how poor those interviews were, I'm not sure that the way this investigation was handled deserves that kind of faith. So, you have four possible persons of interest, and you pretty much just let it go. None of them spoke to Barbara. Two of them didn't even see her. That's pretty impressive to not see a person inside the same house you're in who parks in the driveway and often walks to and from work. Sure, it's not impossible, but if I were working this case, these four guys would be some of the first ones I'd want to re-interview. Some friends and members of Barbara's family felt that maybe the investigation into her disappearance hadn't been executed with the highest urgency, and sadly, they may have been correct. At the same time, New Mexico and Taos in particular was in the midst of a huge problem during the 1990s. If you go back and look through newspaper archives and reports of the time, you'll find countless cases mentioned where women were murdered, assaulted, beaten, or abducted, for which no one was ever charged, or in some cases, those who were charged, faced extremely light sentences. One particular article published in October of 95 four months after Barbara's disappearance, opens with the sentence, it is open season upon the women of Taos. Sounds like there were a lot of unsolved crimes targeting women. And while it's too much to discuss here, I guarantee you we'll be covering some of those cases in the future. I have never, in all of my research for this show, covered a case where every article I read mentions another woman who's missing or murdered with an unsolved case in the same fucking town. Now, in cases like this, it's often believed that there had to be a direct or personal connection between victim and perpetrator. The problem is, when it comes to Barbara, no one can really establish that. No one's been able to determine a reason why Barbara might have been targeted, nor how the crime was carried out without anyone in the area noticing. There were no reports of screaming, vehicles coming and going, unknown persons in the neighborhood, or any signs of forced entry into the duplex or the apartment next door. During the research for this episode, I came across a theory that perhaps someone had entered the next door apartment and either made a noise or perhaps turned on the outside light, something which grabbed Barbara's attention. Climbing out of bed, she throws on some clothes, steps into her shoes, and goes next door where she finds someone waiting for her. The phone line's been cut, her shoes are found on the couch, and the bed is missing the mattress cover, blanket, and sheet. Given experience in similar cases, investigators theorize perhaps Barbara's attacked and assaulted before being killed, at which point she's wrapped up in the bedding and taken out of the duplex. It's a sound theory, but it lacks a motive, and some of the evidence doesn't support it. Assuming that she had been killed in there, there more likely would have been some blood or some signs of a struggle, unless these people cleaned up after themselves. Some would argue there had to be a reason why this happened. Others would suggest that perhaps it was a random crime. In many different cases of unsolved murders such as this, it's later determined that the suspect didn't live in the area but may have traveled there for one reason or another. This brings us to what is known as the Rainbow Family Gathering. The United States Department of Agriculture describes the Rainbow Family as a loose-knit group of people from throughout the United States and other countries who gather annually at a different national forest. Crowds typically range from 2,000 to more than 10,000 visitors. In 1995, the gathering was held in Carson National Forest, 60 miles west of Taos and just south of Tres Piedras. We know, based upon information relayed by investigators, that several people who had arrived in town for the Rainbow Family Gathering were renting an apartment directly across the street from Barbara. Now, 
I imagine it's somewhat difficult to determine who exactly was there and where they came from. It's a lot of people. But it seems kind of wild to me that this wasn't pursued more strongly. I imagine if people were renting the apartment, someone had to provide a form of identification to secure it. From that alone, you should be able to figure out some of the people who were present in the apartment across the street. And from there, you get the ball rolling. Now, I have nothing in particular against the Rainbow Family Gathering. Frankly, until I began researching this case, I'd never even heard of it. However, this would not be the first time that one of the gatherings left a body or a missing person in its wake. In 1980, the bodies of two women were found after a gathering at the Monongahela National Forest in West Virginia. In July of 2011, Marie Hansen disappeared while attending the gathering at Gifford Pinchot National Forest in Washington. Three months later, her remains were discovered near her campsite. In 2015, when the gathering occurred in Apalachicola National Forest in Florida, one man was shot and paralyzed while another was shot and killed. The shooter was then beaten and stabbed by other family members before being arrested and charged. In July of 2018, Joseph Capstraw was arrested in Elizabethtown, Kentucky, after confessing to the murder of a woman he'd met at a gathering in Lumpkin County, Georgia. In February of 2021, Larry Duger was attending a family gathering in the Ocala National Forest in Florida when he was shot and killed by an unknown assailant. This is not to speak ill of the gathering. The intentions and drives which motivate the group are pure and positive. But whenever you've got a mass event that draws in thousands and thousands of people, like this gathering, a concert series, an art show, a tournament, a sporting event, you run the risk that some of those people are not coming with the best of intentions. Many believe it's entirely possible that Barbara could have been targeted by someone who had been in town for the event, such as the Arizona man they looked at after he sexually assaulted and murdered a 14-year-old girl whose body he then left at his campsite. Honestly, it's difficult to know because while there was at least one report of Barbara being seen in the car with some hippie-looking men, it's hard to know if that's the result of a legitimate sighting or an angry local wanting to send the police after those at the gathering. It happens. You can read the reports. So there's a lot of details about this case that really bother me, especially the frustration of having so little to work with. But one thing that keeps repeating again and again in my mind is the details of Barbara's apartment. She had thousands of dollars in cash, a nice car in the driveway, jewelry and crafts, and yet nothing's taken. In fact, outside of the work gloves found in the home, there was no indication that anyone else had been in there. So if the motive wasn't robbery and it wasn't about forcing their way into Barbara's apartment, what was it about? Many folks, including myself, find themselves torn between two possibilities. That someone went into the apartment next door for reasons unknown and when Barbara found them, they attacked or someone went out of their way to purposefully lure her into a trap. It's also entirely possible that she could have been lured over there to be held while someone went into her apartment looking for something. Maybe something that she told them exactly where it was, but after they got it, they killed her anyway. Others have speculated that, considering her past links to people involved in the drug trade, that she may have become involved with another person who had connections like that. Maybe this person thought she was going to turn them in, maybe they felt she'd stolen something from them, or maybe it had nothing to do with drugs at all. There's really no way of knowing as the case currently stands. So what do you believe happened? Was Barbara the victim of a crime? Could it have been someone she knew and perhaps trusted? Or does it sound more like random? 
Could either of the two men from her past have been involved, or is that easily dismissible? Sadly, the deeper you dig into Barbara's life, you're only going to find two things. An utter lack of information and an endless stream of questions upon which the fate of the entire case could shift were only an answer found. 33-year-old Barbara Holick vanished nearly 30 years ago. She's been missing for nearly as long as she was known to have been alive. Leaving her native Germany behind, she headed to the American West in search of her happy ending and instead may have found herself in the sights of a madman. Sadly, Unless new information is discovered, someone comes forward, or Barbara herself is located, the disappearance of Barbara Holick will remain open, unsolved, and ice cold. If you're looking for more information about the disappearance of Barbara Holick, there are many websites and forums discussing her case. Newspaper archives also have many articles from the past about this case, and in this instance, both the Albuquerque Journal and the Taos News were the most helpful. If you have any information about the disappearance of Barbara Holick, please contact the Taos Police Department at 575-758-4656. Her case is number F-164-95. She has a profile in NamUs, which can be found under MP-17907. Thus far, she has been compared to two Jane Doe's, both from Virginia, both ruled out. DNA, dental, and fingerprints are available for comparison. One final note, I'd like to give a shout out to listener of the show, Geza, who was extremely helpful in trying to teach me pronunciation of certain German terms, which I am sure I failed to live up to, but I really appreciate her assistance. What do you believe happened? Tweet me at TraceEvPod, email me at TraceEvidencePod at gmail.com or comment in the Facebook group. At this time, I'd like to take a moment to thank our amazing Patreon producers. Alicia Lorraine, Andrew Guarino, Anne Bertram, Camelia Tyler, Christine Greco, Danny Renee, Deirthi, Denise Dingsdale, Diane Dyson, Eloanne Meyer, Fabulous TT, Guillerme Pinto, Jennifer Winkler, Julie A. Mangano, Justin Snyder, Kara Moreland, K.Y., Lars Jensen Fangel, Leslie B., Madison LaHoulier, Marla Wright, Melissa Brekhuizen, Nick Mohar Shures, Sarah Lyons, Travis Skepko, Stacey Finnegan, Stephanie Joyner, Stephanie Eve, Tiffany Nelson, and Tom Radford. Without your amazing support, this show would not be possible. So thank you all so much for contributing to Trace Evidence. One quick reminder, if you're planning on attending CrimeCon this year in Orlando, Florida, use promo code TRACE at CrimeCon.com to save 10% off your pass. Once again, that's promo code TRACE at CrimeCon.com. If you're interested in learning more about this case or other cases featured on the show, please visit trace-evidence.com. 
There you can find case breakdowns, all social media links, merchandise shops, case descriptions, media, and options for donating, including PayPal and Patreon, should you wish to support the show. This concludes our look into the 1995 disappearance of Barbara Holick from Taos, New Mexico. I want to again thank you all for listening, and I hope you'll join me next week for another unsolved case on the next episode of Trace Evidence.